Um, well, hello everyone. I'm Tara, a member here at Restored. Uh, and I am here. Um, I'm up here to introduce a dear friend of mine who's preaching today. Um, her name is Julia, for those who don't know. And yeah, it's her first time preaching. And I just wanted to share a couple words to introduce her. Um, I've been in her GC for many, many years. It feels like a lifetime because COVID feels like a lifetime. But <laughs> even before that, um, it's probably been like seven or so years now. Um, and I've had the benefit from watching um, her grow like a ton throughout these years. And I have really um, been encouraged by her um, challenged by her in the gospel, and she's someone that I really trust um, a lot. She um, has been like a really important person in my life, and um, she, it's been clear since the beginning that she has a gift of wisdom, and I've loved watching her grow into that more and more, and there are time as friends and in our GC and now like I'm excited that the whole church gets to benefit that from that too um, and for those of you who are at the retreat and heard her speak there I think she has a gift of speaking and encouraging um, people so I'd like for you to come up and we can pray and then we can hear. here you go <laughs> yeah give it up all righty Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, Lord, I just thank you so much for Julia and for the woman who you have um, created her to be and how you've um, grown her so much over the, the past years. And um, I thank you that you have led her to this moment, that um, all the little moments and the big moments of um, growth and struggle and um, breakthrough have have led to um, her being up here on the stage and uh, I pray Lord that you would speak through her today that um, you would help her to feel your peace throughout this message that um, you would be glorified through her words that you would just help her um, Lord to also feel your spirit um, as she preaches and shares this message and um, she's um, speaking on this topic of loving um, our enemies, and um, I pray that um, to protect her from the enemy during this message, and that, yeah, that you would just help her and be with her. Um, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay. Good morning, everyone. As Tara said, I'm Julia. Um, I'm a member here, if you don't already know me. And I thought I was doing the benediction today, so this is a little awkward. <laughs> Just kidding, guys. I'm prepared. <laughs> uh, if it's not already obvious with me standing up here and everyone saying, I am preaching this morning. So let's get into it. Um, today's passage is in, you guessed it, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. And I'm going to start us by reading verses 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, whoa, that's a lot. (laughs) Now, some of you may be thinking, I don't have enemies. Enemies is such an intense word. That being said, Others of you may have experienced trauma or abuse from someone who actually did act as an enemy toward you. And for you, the concept of an enemy is unfortunately way clearer than you'd like it to be. But I would guess for many of us in 2022 in San Diego, we might struggle to name a current enemy or like an example of an enemy in our lives. I think that we struggle to name an enemy or be honest about the enemies that we do have for a few reasons. The first reason might be culture. Here's what I mean. Culturally, we don't like to put labels on things. We often, but not always, struggle in a place like North Park to call anyone's behavior morally wrong because there is way too much objective truth connected to the idea of something being morally wrong. In light of that, it can be hard to say that someone wronged us with any confidence, never mind actually call them an enemy. In light of that, like in this kind of environment, calling someone an enemy could feel judgmental or self-righteous, and we don't want to be those things, or at least admit them outwardly. Another reason it might be hard to name enemies is our personalities. For a lot of us, we have more passive, go-with-the-flow personalities. We tend to want to avoid hard things, so we pretend to not be hurt by people who have wronged us. Or maybe you just hate conflict. And I may or may not be talking about myself here, but we'll go to the next one. Okay, maybe it's tied to your family of origin. Some of you grew up in a family where you weren't allowed to express negative emotions. You weren't allowed to be sad or hurt, even when you had been mistreated by someone. This might cause you to doubt your own experiences and maybe even believe the lie that when someone actually does something wrong to you, that it was okay or that it was your fault or that you were quote unquote being dramatic. It's hard to admit we have enemies if we struggle to voice that we have been wronged. 
Or maybe you can't see your enemies because you compare yourself to others. What I mean is sometimes we compare our pain and suffering to others and we say something like, those people were actually wronged and wounded. They have real enemies. And I just have people who kind of made me feel unloved from time to time. But seriously, we can believe the lie that we weren't wounded deeply, at least not as deep as them, which delegitimizes our pain. It's hard to admit we have enemies when we believe that we need to have experienced a certain amount of pain at the hands of another before it's deemed legitimate. Let me say that one more time. It's hard to admit we have enemies when we believe that we need to have experienced a certain amount of pain at the hands of another before it's deemed legitimate. And the last reason it's hard for us to identify enemies is that some of us don't want to be petty. I think for a lot of us, we don't want to be the kind of person who has enemies, right? Like, who wants to be that bitter, angry, keeps records of every wrong kind of person? Most of us don't want to spend time with that person, much less be that person. So you take all of that and you mix in some of the SoCal just chill mentality and enemies can start to feel like a pretty foreign concept to nail down or name. Now, to some degree, I resonate with these reasons of doubting whether or not I have enemies that I am in need of loving. Until I started studying for this sermon and I read these verses like a hundred times. <laughs> and unfortunately for me, and it turns out all of you too, we do have enemies. Which leads to the first question I want to answer this morning. Who is my enemy? When Jesus says in this passage in Matthew 5 to love your enemy, his original audience would have struggled with this teaching in some ways that we might not today. That is to say, in their culture, they had a clear sense of who their enemies were, but they had a narrow view of who their neighbors were. When Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, he is referencing Leviticus 19, 17 through 18, which says, do not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly, and you will not incur guilt because of him. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So when God gives the command in Leviticus 19, he makes it clear that their neighbors were their fellow Israelites, but he doesn't say that only fellow Israelites were their neighbors. However, many rabbis and most people alive in Jesus' day would have interpreted the word neighbor to mean only your own people, those of the same ethnicity or religion or thinking. But Jesus' description of a neighbor was very different and included people who many Jews would have viewed as enemies. In Luke 10, Jesus clarifies who our neighbors are. So I'm going to go ahead and read that right now, Luke 10, starting in verse 25. Then an expert in the law, by the way, this expert is trying to trick Jesus. He's about to ask him a disingenuous question. So let's read what he asks. Verse 25. 
Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it? Then the religious teacher answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Then Jesus responds in verse 28, You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the teacher asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. Okay, pause. A little context. There's a lot of characters in this parable, but right now I'm just going to focus on one, the Samaritan. The Samaritans, as an entire ethnic group, were despised and hated by Jews. They were considered heretics and half-breeds because of a bunch of historical and religious drama. To the original audience, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. The Samaritan would have been considered the absolute other, a given enemy. It would be similar to how Palestinians and Israelis might view each other today, or how Catholics and Protestants viewed one another in Northern Ireland in the 80s, or maybe how a hyper-progressive person might view someone with a MAGA hat on today. My point is, they would not see each other as a natural neighbor. So this parable would have been scandalous. Okay, now with that context, let's keep going. Verse 33. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. So that's the end of Jesus' story, but now he's going to check back in with the religious teacher. So let's keep reading in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, Go and do the same. So, Jesus redefines who our neighbors are here, but that still leaves us with the question, who are our enemies? And you might be wondering, Julia, when are you going to tell us who our enemies are? And Maria's right, you guys ask the best questions. The answer is next week. Just kidding. The answer is right now. So we can understand more clearly what an enemy is through the context of the Greek words used in this passage. Jesus says an enemy is someone who persecutes you. You may be thinking, no one persecutes me though. Which leads to another question. What does it mean to be persecuted? When we hear the word persecution, we might think of the communist government in China or maybe someone losing their job because they're a Christian. It does include that. It's not less than that. 
but it's actually more than that. The Greek definition of persecution is anyone who is hostile to you, who opposes you, and causes suffering emotionally or physically. Let's do that one more time. Really let it sink in. Persecution is anyone who is hostile to you, who opposes you, and causes suffering emotionally or physically. When we redefine enemy or persecutor, I think it changes how we interpret Jesus' teaching and it broadens how we can apply it. Because we all have people in our lives who have caused us emotional or physical pain or who have opposed us. And like I mentioned earlier, and I'm hoping you're starting to grasp for yourself, we all have enemies. And in a fallen world, we actually have them in every season of life. So let me tell you about some of my enemies. Also, I want to be clear, not all of them impacted me in equally painful ways. They run the gamut from the silly to the genuinely dramatic. That being said, they all felt like figures that opposed me in different ways in different seasons of my life. The first enemy I can remember is from way back. I'm talking first grade. I know. Her name was Julia V. Yeah. And honestly, she was my childhood nemesis. Let me explain. We were always in the same class, so because of that, we had to go by our last initials, which bothered me so much. How lame is Julia P? Ugh. Yeah, still winds me up, man. So clearly, she became an object of discomfort for me in general. But honestly, the initials thing, not the end of the world. We were just getting started. So a few years later, things got real. It was fourth grade, and our class was putting on a play, and Julia V got the lead role. And I, I was the understudy. Yeah, it's a real bummer. How lame is the understudy? Nine-year-old Julia P wanted to be the star of the show, but then, don't judge me, good news. Julia V got sick. Yeah, and I got to play the lead role. She got the flu, not a major medical illness, you guys. I'm not a monster. So I'm in rehearsals, and me, Julia P., your girl, I'm playing the lead. Until the day of the performance, like some sick joke, Julia V. shows up, healthy as can be, and she got to play the lead for the real deal. And that's when I formally quit acting. Anyways, moving on. So then cue my freshman year of high school. This girl, Kristen and I, had been really good friends in middle school, and I went to high school thinking we would be best friends forever. And the back to school dance comes, and all the freshmen are supposed to wear orange. Horrible, but I'll do it for the cause. When I showed up to the pre-dance pictures, you guys know, like, show off your little outfit, I was in a different outfit. That is, Kristen had coordinated a matching outfit for a bunch of other girls to all wear and excluded me from the group. I know, right? Like, I'm already a little upset that I have to wear this orange, and then the orange I'm wearing is not what the cool girls are wearing. And that might not sound like that big of a deal now, 
but my little freshman self honestly felt rejected and excluded and as much as I hate to admit it hurt and this actually would lead to a falling out of sorts between Kristen and me and we were at odds throughout the rest of high school but a few years later something truly traumatic happened to me and someone that should have been there for me did not show up for me physically or emotionally or in any of the ways that they should have. And I've really wrestled with my anger toward them and my trust in them after that. And it's caused me to question my value and worth from not only their standpoint, but also from God and others. They genuinely caused me emotional suffering. They genuinely wounded me. Now, these stories might seem like they're all over the map in terms of their levels of seriousness, but what I'm hoping you'll see from my examples is that enemies can take on many forms, and whether we like it or not, we all have enemies. Now, the question I want to answer is this, which is actually our second question today. How do we deal with our enemies? Now, before we take a look at how Jesus calls us to love, I want to talk about how we normally deal with enemies as fallen people. We already have a way we deal with enemies. You just might not realize it yet. So I want to do a little diagnostic real quick. So as I work through these, ask yourself which one you think you might be most prone to. So the first approach to dealing with enemies is what I'll call the pretender. You have hatred in your heart, but you don't realize your hurt or anger and the power that has over you. Or you do recognize it, but you pretend it's not there. You might think something like, I don't have any enemies, I'm fine with everyone. Like in that episode of Friends, the one where Ross is fine, where Ross finds out Rachel and Joey are dating, and he starts yelling, I'm fine, I'm fine, totally fine. I don't know why it's coming out all loud and squeaky because really, I'm fine. <laughs> or if you're not a Friends fan, maybe you've seen the meme of the cartoon dog sitting in the middle of a room that's on fire drinking coffee saying, this is fine. <laughs> this could also be called denial. So that's the pretender. Now I wanna talk about the withdrawer. Here is what the withdrawer does. If someone hurts you, forget them. You block them out, ignore them, cut them off. But in the end, you're still left with your hurt. Withdrawers like to ghost people and avoid hard situations altogether. Picture the withdrawer like this. Curled up into a ball, shut down emotionally, and looking on kayak.com explore for the cheapest one-way tickets out of town. So maybe you resonate with the withdrawer, but for some of you, the withdrawer might be way too passive for you. Maybe you are an attacker. Now, attacker doesn't mean physically violent. I mean, I guess they could get violent, but not always. To put it another way, if the withdrawer is flight, the attacker is fight. So if you're an attacker, if someone hurts you, you gain power and take charge. Fight back and assert your rights. Your solution for hurt and pain is retaliation. I think everyone's heard of Will Smith at the Oscars, right? That's an attacker. You hurt me, I'm coming right back at you. So maybe attacking enemies is your thing, but maybe not. 
Maybe instead of attacking or withdrawing, you try to draw others in to do your dirty work, which leads to our next style of relating to enemies. Last but not least, the triangulator. I know nothing about this one, so you guys have to tell me how it goes. They say, just kidding, it goes something like this. You bring other people in on your hatred. You try to get rid of the discomfort of your feelings by getting others involved. Think gossip, think slander, think creating teams or rallying people to your side to gang up on your enemy. Think the high school lunchroom. Now, here is what I want you to catch with all of these. None of them are how Jesus wants us to relate to our enemies. So now we'll look at how he wants us to engage them instead. So let's look back at our text. Jesus is providing clarity here. He says, don't resist an evildoer. The word resist here means to oppose or retaliate. So if we can't oppose or retaliate against our enemies, what can we do? For one, we can treat them better than they deserve. Let me reread Matthew 5, 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So with the assumption that you're like me and might need some of these verses explained, let me do that for you. Verse 38 references an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And while that sounds randomly familiar, it's not a cute saying. It's referencing the law of reciprocity which says in Leviticus 24, whatever injury he inflicted on the person, the same is to be inflicted on him. And this was the standard of rightness, fairness, and justice. It wasn't about revenge as much as the law prevented people from the natural tendency to do more damage in retaliation. But it was a rule of thumb for judges deciding legal cases and the limits of restitution. It was not given as a warrant for revenge in personal relationships. Then, verse 39 references being slapped on your right cheek, which would reference a backhanded slap. This illustration is more about being insulted or humiliated than it is about physical harm. And the directive following is also more than just a cute saying, turn the other cheek. Jesus is instructing us to lovingly absorb the wrongdoing. This is not Jesus saying to embrace the abuse. There is a difference between personal revenge and redemptive wise justice. So if someone was being abused, we would encourage them to get to a safe place as quickly as possible and support them through a legal process if there was one to restrain evil and pursue justice. That is completely different from physically abusing someone in response to them physically abusing you. Or if someone you confided in has gossiped about you, there is a difference between gossiping about them to get back at them and choosing not to confide in them again. One is revenge, 
One might be gracious wisdom. Even if you don't confide in them anymore, you might still be able to extend kindness to them and talk positively about them when they are not around. In the same way, there is a difference between a family member talking to you in an emotionally abusive way and you letting them know that you won't allow them to talk to you like that, and if they keep going, you're going to leave. That is different to responding vindictively and speaking to them in an emotionally abusive, cutting way yourself. So in summary here, I want to highlight this. This is important. Jesus isn't encouraging abused people to continue experiencing abuse. Not at all but he is encouraging them to not treat their abusers in the same way they were treated. And a way we can treat others better than they deserve is to forgive them. Forgiveness is different than trust. Forgiveness says, I am not going to make you pay, and trust says, I'm loaning money to you again. In Tim Keller's new book, Forgive, he writes about an Amish community in which a gunman shot 10 children, killing five, and then committed suicide. The community members on the same day visited the killer's family to express their sympathy for the loss of their son and also express their forgiveness of him. Keller then contrasts this to American culture. He writes, Secular society can no longer produce people who can handle suffering without retaliation the way the Amish did. Americans are committed to self-realization and self-assertion and have a profound sense of entitlement. They believe that their happiness, interests, and needs always come first. The Amish, however, have as one of their core values self-renunciation, with forgiveness being one form of it. It is giving up your right to pay back the person for what they did to you. In sharp contrast to American culture, which pits self-fulfillment against self-sacrifice, and which will produce revenge or withdrawal as a response to any mistreatment. Most of us have therefore been formed by a culture that nourishes revenge and mocks grace. In such a culture, forgiveness is seen as self-hating, and revenge and anger are considered authentic. This strong communal rejection of revenge from the Amish was not an abstract theological principle. It is the Lord Christ who forbids revenge. And they are not merely to refrain from retaliation, but to seek the highest welfare of even those who have hurt them. Why? They are to act according to his example. At the heart of their faith and culture, the Amish Christians worship a man dying for his enemies. Through through communal practices, this self-sacrificing figure is depicted, praised, sung, believed, and celebrated constantly. For Jesus to give his life and to forgive his tormentors was an act of enormous love and spiritual strength and one of surpassing beauty. It is burned into the hearts and imaginations of every member in this community. End quote. So like the Amish Christians in this story demonstrated in their forgiveness of their children's killer, 
A follower of Jesus is called to renounce the opportunity to get revenge. And this could look really big, like what the Amish community did, or it could look small. So I spent some time this week thinking about what this might look like, and here are some examples. Imagine speaking really kindly about someone who had been really rude to you, especially when they're not even there to hear it. Imagine moving towards someone in a welcoming way and breaking the ice, even if the person has a history of being rude to you in similar settings. Imagine inviting someone to an event that you're hosting after they've excluded you from their own events time and time again. Imagine giving credit to your coworker for something they helped you with when they've tried to get ahead of you for your entire career and you could easily not mention it or take credit for it. Imagine being a member of the church that I heard about this past week that received word in advance that an LGBTQ activist group was planning on protesting their church on a rainy Sunday and made a plan to deal with them. They dealt with them by recruiting a team of umbrella-holding volunteers from their church to keep the protesters dry. And they also bought donuts and prepared hot chocolate and coffee to be handed out to the protesters. They blessed those who were cursing and mocking them that day. What they were doing there is so close to the heart of what Jesus taught in our passage today, serving someone who was opposing them. In a similar way, imagine being the woman I read about this week who decades earlier was cheated on and abandoned by her husband, but who later would take care of that same ex-husband, preserving his dignity while he died an excruciating, shameful death, unable to care for his own basic needs. When she could have said, karma, you got what you deserve, she instead chose to say with her life, grace. I will treat you better than you deserve. The heart of what it means to be a Christ follower is that the way we approach our enemies actually is different. This is what discipleship is, loving those that we deem unlovable. And Jesus knows this so well. So we are called to treat our enemies better than they deserve while forsaking revenge, but we are also called to one more thing, and it's this. The second way Jesus calls us to engage with our enemies is by praying for them. In Matthew 5:44, Jesus says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The word pray in this verse is a present imperative. It's a command that calls for habitual action. Pray and keep praying. Jesus showed us how to do this when he prayed for his persecutors on the cross at the most excruciatingly painful moment of his entire life. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. And while he's dying for us, experiencing the consequences of our sin, if there was ever a time to get selfish, throw a pity party, it's right there. But no, on the cross, Jesus is contemplating you and me. And Jesus is our example here, but you also need to know that praying for our enemies is actually good for us. Here's what I mean. Prayer defends us from bitterness. 
Bitterness is like poison. It's toxic for you and for others. The anger and disappointment you have at being treated unfairly by someone can destroy you. You can bring your enemies in prayer to God versus causing the bitterness you feel to drive you away from God. When Jesus says, pray for your enemies, it's a defense from the bitterness that could poison you to death and separate you from your gracious and loving Father who actually wants to help you. But prayer isn't just defense, it's also offense. Prayer brings more of God's kingdom into our lives. With prayer, we have the opportunity to partner with God to see his kingdom be more realized throughout the earth. We can pray even for things that feel impossible, like your enemy repenting or your enemy becoming your friend. Your prayers matter. One of the greatest challenges when we've been wounded, though, is how do I pray for and love this person when I feel fill-in-the-blank toward them? Hatred, anger, indifference, etc. I would encourage you to start small, maybe praying about praying. Praying things like, God, give me the grace to pray. God, give me the ability and desire to pray for this person. God, bless them. God, here is this person. Might they be an instrument from you to me? God, guide me, teach me, show me your next steps. Through prayer and solitude with Jesus, we become rooted in our love for God and his love for us so that the love of God can flow out of us and then we're actually able to love other people. We often think that our enemies are an interruption to our spiritual life and our serving of Jesus. But actually, our enemies create an opportunity to draw near to him and to cry out for his help, for his grace. And the closer we draw near to God in love, the more we'll be able to love our neighbor, which, as you'll remember, includes our enemies. So here we've arrived at our last question this morning. Where can we find the power to do this? And the answer is receiving enemy love that you don't deserve. That is to say, loving your enemies can seem too radical or unfair. And you know what? It is unfair. But Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. This is exactly how God responded to us. With the greatest act of generosity in the whole world, while we were his enemies, Jesus died for us. So let's look at Romans 5, 6 through 11 to illustrate this. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have been now declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? 
And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. God responds to our opposition with undeserved grace and love. The love that God has for us is enemy love. We are people who go against his will. We are hostile towards him. We cause him to suffer as he watches us, people that he loves and has given himself for, make bad choices. But God cares for and loves us so deeply, even and especially when we act as his enemies. He died to make his enemies, you and me, his family. And we have a chance to love like that, not perfectly, but clearly. In order to do the same to others, we have to realize it's what he does with us. So we find the power to love our enemies by looking to Jesus who went before us and also by being perfect. Huh? Verse 48 ends the passage with, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'm like, okay, Jesus, it's a tall order. <laughs> we are called to be perfect. And that's the end of the sermon, go be perfect, everyone. Kidding. So it's not exactly what you think. The Greek word for perfect here is teleos, which doesn't mean is never an error. It actually means fully developed or fully realized. Fully developed as in it is accomplishing the purpose it was developed for. As one author described, the Greek idea of perfection is to be fully functional. A thing is perfect if it fully realizes the purpose for which it was planned, designed, and made. Teleos is the adjective formed from the noun telos, which means an end, a purpose, an aim, a goal. A thing is teleos if it achieved the purpose for which it is planned. Human beings are perfect if they achieve the purpose for which they were created and sent into the world. So preparing this sermon, I started pondering things that do exactly what they were designed to do. And I thought of my veggie chopper. So I have this veggie chopper. It's so great. You put your vegetable of choice in. Onion is the prime example for obvious reasons. And then you pull a cord a couple times to make the blades go, and voila, it's chopped. No blood, no sweat no tears, which are all a possibility depending on the vegetable you're working with, right? But anyways, I really love this thing. This veggie chopper is teleos. It's doing exactly what it's designed to do. When we love our enemies, we're doing exactly what we were designed to do, which is to reflect our father, who he is and what he does. In the very beginning, Genesis lays out this exact purpose for which we were created. Genesis 1.26 reads, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let me rephrase it. God created us with a purpose for us to be like him. So perfect means to fulfill your purpose, to become like him. And our father loves his enemies. He's an enemy lover. So let me close us out with this. 
Receiving the love of God empowers us to love others, even our enemies. And in doing so, we are to lay us, living out our purpose of being like our Father. And to help us learn to reflect our Father more clearly, I'd like to call up Grant to lead us through a prayer exercise. Yeah, let's appreciate Julia. That was so beautiful. I don't know about you guys um, listening to her share today, but um, I read through her notes before the sermon, and I just thought, this is so beautiful and so challenging at the same time. And I found myself reading the notes, and as she shared it, getting pretty choked up when she shared that story of the woman who cared for her husband, her ex-husband, who cheated on her and rejected her. And she said these words. She said, when you should have said karma, you got what you deserve. She instead chose to say with her life, grace, I will treat you better than you deserve. I sort of felt so challenged by that. Like, I want vengeance. I want justice. I want to hurt those who hurt me. But the grace of God is just such a beautiful thing. So I feel like freshly... Um, just appreciative of God's grace more, but also aware of what is inside of my own heart. And we're going to take a few minutes now to pray for our enemies. Um, we're going to do that on our own um, here in the congregation. You don't have to share who they are with anyone else, but we're going to do that because actually what, we've, what Julia has shared today, um, we could just hear and say, that was a nice sermon. Thanks for sharing that and not let it change our hearts. But with our minds, with our hearts, with our emotions, with our lips, with our prayers, we want to actually practice what she's spoken about today, which I think could be challenging, but also such a beautiful thing to do. So let's take a moment to think, who are my enemies? You might not have had anyone who has slapped you or sued you or cursed you or persecuted you recently. But Julia gave us this definition Someone who has persecuted us, persecuted us is anyone who is hostile to you, who opposes you, and causes suffering emotionally or physically. Does someone come to mind? Otherwise, what about just a competitor? Someone who's in the same industry as you, someone at work, someone who you want to beat, someone who you want to be better with. That we could pray God's blessing over that person. And if the word blessing just seems too churchy and intangible what are the prayers you would want someone to pray for you what, what would the the prayers you would most desire for your own life be and let's pray those prayers for our enemy or our competitor so we're going to do that in just a minute but i i wanted to share this with you guys um this is a little prayer journal i've got very nerdy very nerdy but a, a few years ago, uh, like a pastor mentor guy told me that he did this, that, that he wrote things down in a prayer book just so that he would actually pray the things that he wanted to pray, you know, that they'd be in front of him when he, he went to pray and speak to God. So I wrote down a bunch of things for myself, for Shell, for August, for this church, for other churches and people that I care about and wanted to pray for. And some of the people that are in this book over the last few years would count as enemies now according to what Julia said. They've hurt me and caused me pain. And I just want to be honest with you and say, a few times I've wanted to throw this book away. 
or start again. Because every time I pray, their names are there on the pages confronting me. You know, my enemies, those who have hurt me. And I've wanted to cross them out. I've wanted to redo this book. It would take me half an hour. I've got a bunch of these kind of like booklets at home. It would take me half an hour, easy to do. And then I wouldn't be confronted by these people. But it's like the Spirit has kind of provoked me and said, don't do that. Keep those names in this book. Be reminded of them. Pray for them regularly. And honestly, pretty regularly, I I look through some of those names because there's a few in this book. And I didn't feel any hatred or animosity. It was easy to look at those names and to pray for those people. I think because God's grace has been at work in my heart as I've prayed for them over months. And today we're going to start, we're going to pray for our enemies here. But my encouragement would be that it doesn't end here, but that actually every day this week we would carry on this practice of that person or those people, those competitors or those who've heard us, that we would pray for them and trust that not only would God bless them, but actually that God would bless us, that His grace would work in us, that it would change us, and that we would become the people God's made us to be. We'd be perfect. We'd be living out our purpose, what we were created for by God. Let's take a moment. Let me just pray for you guys. Um, Father, I just thank you for the beauty of your grace and your forgiveness. Um, Just feel freshly touched by it this morning. Just your incredible pursuit of us and grace towards us. Your perfection, your love. Pray even now you would soften our hearts, Lord. As some of us, probably this is such a sensitive and real and raw subject. I pray you would heal us. I pray you would make us whole. I, I pray you would help us. I pray you would empower us, Lord, by your love to be able to pray for our enemies and forgive our enemies and move towards them, as Dave said, in whatever way that we need to. Just ask that we would be the kind of church that is living out the Sermon on the Mount, the kind of church that is following you in all things, even these really raw, sensitive, emotional, real, painful areas, Lord. I just thank you for healing and wholeness and growth. And that your grace would go deeper inside my heart and our hearts and change us to be more and more like you. We're going to go into a time of communion now. And I just think Julia ended her message so well, speaking about the way God is an enemy lover. And how he loved us when we were his enemies and separated from him. How Jesus went to the cross not when we were right with him, but when we were separated from him by sin. And I think this is such a beautiful moment just to receive that, to freshly receive the grace of God and the forgiveness of God, to receive His love and His for you-ness. So would you receive that now? Just, just think, some of you right now might feel very far from God. Some of you might now might feel like you're an enemy. But Julia's message is that He is an enemy-loving God. And Lord, we thank You for the cross. And we thank you for your body broken for your enemies and your blood shed for your enemies. And right now as we come forward to eat the bread and drink the cup, I thank you that we would not just experience those truths, but we would grow to live in them more and more. Amen.